This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Welcome into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast, everyone. Tom Oates here with you again, and we're continuing to talk about how states and local communities are delivering prevention services. You know, about 10 years ago, the state of Oregon saw that nearly half of its families who were involved in the child welfare system were also connected to TANF services. And they also saw an opportunity, offering community-based prevention services to TANF families to hopefully decrease the risk of becoming involved in the child welfare system. So today, we're gonna take a dive into what that looks like from the state level and on the ground as self-sufficiency, child welfare, and support services come together to connect families to housing, transportation, parenting skills, or education support. It's called Family Support and Connections, and it's run through about 75 different program offices throughout the state. Now, it's funded mostly through a community-based child abuse and prevention grant, but they blend other funds together to make it happen. What it looks like to the families is a partnership, between family coaches who help administer TANF and family advocates who help connect families to services and supports. Together, they work with families in the hopes of increasing protective factors, stabilizing the family for the long term, and you'll hear about one of their success stories. And all of this hopes to reduce the risk of a family getting involved with the child welfare system. So joining us in on the conversation are Lawrence Piper from the Oregon Department of Human Services, who administers the program from the state level along with three folks from Umatilla and Morrow counties. Diana Ilawa, a self-sufficiency program manager, Liddy Machado, a child welfare program manager, and Lali Torres, a community resource coordinator. You'll hear what the state does to support the program, but also the steps in identifying and working with families in this collaborative working arrangement, along with the approach professionals have to take in truly partnering with families. This points to understanding that abuse and neglect are symptoms of an array of potential root causes. Identifying and addressing those causes can help keep families stable and children safe. So here you go, talking family support and connections from Oregon. So folks, I want to welcome you into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. And Lawrence, let's start with you from from the state perspective. So talk to me why TANF families are were the the group that Family Support and Connections decided to focus on. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate the opportunity. I came in shortly after the, the focus groups met and talked about how can we effectively use this part of federal funding? And it it became very obvious that we already had an access point for families who were experiencing um, extreme levels of stress, um, operating in crisis mode from 
um, not only house to house, but sometimes meal to meal, and and recognize that this population was uh, in a risk category, um, not necessarily purposely, but that the opportunity to intervene and provide additional supports for their stability was was very appropriate within the the systems that are already here. It was a perfect opportunity to um, provide additional services um, looking at family stability. You know, and you also have the structure of this this network of all your, uh, your nearly 75 program offices throughout the state. So from the, from the central office, from the state perspective, uh, what is Family Support and Connections, the, the main office within the state, doing to support all those program offices? So initially, the, the contracts were written as almost an, an instruction manual. Uh, looking at the federal criteria and looking at building on the positives and looking at the protective factors, we we knew that the more you enhance protective factors, the more you minimize risks. There are risks that you can't mediate. This it's a circumstance of life, and but there's a way to mediate those circumstances and that's by developing the um, protective factors and so that was the framework that was put um, not only just by instruction but contractually these are the types of programs and the focus we want you at the local level to work with we provide um, continuous program technical assistance clear guidance and direction for program design and implementation um, uh, developed a process for invoicing and fairly quick turnaround from the invoice to payment being received. Most of our providers are smaller private nonprofits, particularly in our rural areas, and they don't they we don't want to set up a cash flow issue. Advocate for appropriate referrals. We can make referrals that need to be appropriate for the services provided to make sure that's a good match. Um, access to training and support in um, partial scholarships for those contracted agencies um, staff to to understand what what the whole state system, the the TANF, SNAP, child care child welfare, understanding all of those so they know that what they're doing is significantly making a difference in exactly where. And also in looking at equitable allocations of the funding um, across the state. I'm, I'm curious, is there a way that the state is supporting the communication between the program offices. So maybe what's happening in one part of the state, somebody else can learn. Or if you've got different parts of the state that says, hey, I've got an idea or I've got a need that you can kind of help partner, you know, uh, along the way, just as a just as the, the local um, program offices, you know, collaborate within their own community. The state is your community. Yes, there are. There is a steering committee made up primarily um, representative of the the state and their their program managers. They are staff people within self sufficiency programs. I serve on several work groups that include child welfare 
We have a family stability work group that has child welfare people from the field, as well as the, the field offices, as well as contracted providers. And so there's a constant communication and channeling. Um, I do a fair amount of that. I, I'm on several national listservs and I always forward all that information and and do a lot of the the connecting people to people um, as well as child welfare systems uh, and publications from the Friends Network, which is our TA provider. So so besides and, and clearly you guys are a CV cap grantees, which you know friends clearly has as their involvement and that's where their support comes from. But what's the overall state investment here for for family support and connections? I mean are are TANF funds used here or how's that happen? Yes. So we have blended multiple sources of funding. The CB cap is the foundation and the criteria for program implementation and design. The governor has a line item in her budget that is actually approximately 30% of the total pot. And then on top of it, we have invested 1.6 million TANF service dollars to, to um, really ensure that there's equitable services across the state rather than just a, a pilot in the most populous area that the most populous areas sometimes have the resources where rural and frontier communities, which we have a lot of in Oregon, are left behind. And that wasn't acceptable in our thinking when we designed the program. And especially because those areas may have different challenges where in an urban area you have to deal with volume, but maybe in a rural area you have to deal with transportation or just finding where the services are. So Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about the, some of that inaction. And so I want to bring in, you know, Liddy, uh, Diana, and Lolly. And just, you know, to remind folks, Liddy comes at it from, from the child welfare uh, angle, uh, Diana through through the self-sufficiency a- angle with TANF, and then Lolly Torres in dealing with all of those community partners and trying to work with those family coaches. And so let me start with asking about the process from identifying families to that partnership between uh, self-sufficiency and family support connection. Diana, what does that process look like kind of from start to finish when you're dealing with a family? Okay. Um, I'm going to go ahead and break that into the three parts that you mentioned. It might make it easier to to kind of outline that. I'm going to start with the identifying of families. Um, with self-sufficiency, last year we had begun using a self-assessment tool with individuals that um, really help to identify their areas of strengths and areas that may have needed some additional support to gain skills and long-term stability. Um, uh, This really was putting our families back in the driver's seat. Many um, of these times when we're doing the assessment is where we get to introduce family support and connections and offer to connect them with the program. Another way that we are identifying families is through the collaboration efforts of self-sufficiency and child welfare. Um, It could be through a case that didn't necessarily rise to the child welfare level, but we did identify that the family could benefit from the Family Support Connection Program. 
at this point, if that is identified, the family coach would offer the services and submit a referral if the client agreed to um, enter into services with um, FSC. So really, you know, there's many ways that families are identified um, through our systems, and it really can happen at any point while we're working with them. Sometimes initially up front, families aren't ready for that. Uh, and because we are uh, creating a plan together and they really are the driver um, of their plans and goals, uh, we try to enter that system with them at the point that they're ready. Because yeah, we, was, so we get the ahead. best impact and engagement at those times. You know, I was curious about when you when services are offered, how often are families agreeing or taking you up on the offer for services? I don't have an actual uh, number for you, but there is a fairly large percentage. If um, there are areas that they identify, families usually, you know, like I said, they're setting those goals for themselves and they're motivated to remove those barriers and obstacles. So a lot of times they're able to, they will engage. So you mentioned identifying families. Talk to me about, you know, partnership between FSS and, and Family Support and Connections and then providing services, the other two steps of that three-step process. Great. Yes. Um, our partnerships, you know, one of the, the things about this is that we were we specifically contract for services in the community um, so that it's really representative. And as we talk about, you know, we are in a rural area and I think even some of our area could be considered frontier. Um, so based on that, um, it's really important that we contract for the services in the community. Uh, the beauty of the contract is that we really are getting more than what we contract for because of the partnering that we do. Self-sufficiency and child welfare are housed under the same umbrella where um, family support and connections, the Head Start and the Oregon Parent Education Collaborative are also housed under the same umbrella. So having many of the same goals provides a unique opportunity in our district. It's allowing us to braid our services and leverage resources to help families. We also feel very fortunate because we're able to share best practices and use each other's expertise. I'd like to move on to the services part from there, if that's okay. Um, the services that we're providing um, vary based on the individual family needs. Um, we always want to look at the family holistically, um, and that really is that shift of looking at the, um, the family and using the assessment. And also an important uh, component of that is that we're using an equity lens. Um, this is not so much about equitable, but actual equity, because not everybody needs the same thing. Um, no one size fits all, if you will. Another piece, um, uh, example that I'd like to share is that um, some of the services, you know, just how they range, some of it is around stabilization. And again, this is long-term sustaining um, parenting skills, social connections, uh, family bonding, uh, some of the other services that they're providing is around housing, um, budgeting. Um, it's really some of those things are, are, are seem maybe basic to some of us, but some people have never experienced that, nor has it ever been modeled to them. And many times when a family um, maybe gets into a home from being homeless, you know, they used to spend their money in a different way. And now they're needing to be taught 
in a different way to be able to sustain that housing. So that's a really big piece of it. The other um, couple of just quick examples are um, navigating resources in other systems. And so, you know, I know our system very well, so I have no problem navigating it. But if I had to go to maybe, let's say, the Social Security office, I'm not, I have a basic understanding, but I'm not very familiar with that system. And sometimes it can be very, very um, overwhelming for individuals and we kind of throw our hands up in the air and give up. And so this is where those connections with family support and connections really, really helps families walk through it um, side by side and just really giving them what they need. Um, just two of the other things that are really big on our list there is around transportation and choosing really good child care that works for, for the children. That's great. That's great. So you've got this, obviously, a community collaboration when you're trying to deal with all of your partners and all of your uh, service providers, but then there's a collaboration from the agencies themselves. And so, Lolly, when it comes to the, the, the family coaches and those community partners and, and the family family advocates, how is everybody working together to, you know, to, to share information and, and to make sure there are no gaps along, along the line? So we have a strong structural foundation that allows us to collaborate together because self-sufficiency and child welfare are under the same umbrella. The family supporting connection is contracted by us. So in our district, which is District 12, Umatilla and Morrow County, the family advocates have a great working relationship, collaboration, are able to walk into the self-sufficiency office to staff the family at any time the family coach is available. Also, it is through the regular monthly staffings at the self-sufficiency office that the family advocates share information and conversation between family advocates and families. Throughout this, um, we also have informal staffing by phone calls, emails that also go back and forth throughout the month to share the information. And then also um, through discussion with the family coaches and the advocates, they consider themselves a part of the self-sufficiency team. The advocates feel valued and appreciated by family coaches in the work that they do, and it makes for a great teamwork. Well, and you need a specific type of, of, of talent with the skills and, and frankly, the, the mindset to have a, a strong family advocate. And so, so Liddy, you know, you, you manage more than 60 people, so you've got to deal with personalities and folks and all the work that, that, that goes in to their day-to-day. When you are looking for a family advocate, talk to me about what makes a family advocate successful for your program. Yes, thank you so much. They have to be really empathetic and non-judgmental. They have to be persistent, but patient. Sometimes uh, it takes a while for families to respond and engage in services. Uh, they have, you know, they have to help families identify strengths and build on those strengths. They need to have the knowledge of community resources to help families navigate these systems and also help make, uh, make referrals to uh, community resources. It is important to meet families where they are and taking into consideration the family history, how the parents grew up and employing, former, uh, employing trauma-informed uh, practice strategies. The goal for family advocates is to help families become stable and self-sufficient and helping parents overcome barriers and figuring a way to move forward. They need to have strong family engagement skills along with active listening skills to build rapport. 
close collaboration uh, is what Loli mentioned between the self-sufficiency family coaches and family advocates is a must and regular staffings need to okay to reach the best outcome for families. And in our district, you know, like as Loli already mentioned, they conduct uh, monthly staffings and also um, they um, meet as frequently as, as, as how the family uh, families need. Thank you. Sure. So, so with that, there's, you know, clearly the family plays a role. The family is a part of this. So where is that handoff between control, between responsibility? Because it's, it's we, we've changed, in, you know, it, within the child welfare system, we are changing to letting the family have a leadership role in an ownership role in their own plans. Has there been a shift over the past number of years to make sure that really what family-centered means is they are involved in the process along the way as opposed to kind of being led by the professionals? How is How are your family advocates embracing that? Um, most of the time, they want to be in and out of that family's life as quickly as possible in the shortest amount possible so that families can move on with their lives. And, you know, it's it's meeting that family where they are, like I already mentioned, that, you know, they get into the home, they uh, identify what, is, what it is that the family needs, the family is driving this, and their role is to help that family move that agenda forward, whatever that agenda is, whether it's looking for a job, whether it's getting into alcohol and drug treatment, whether it's uh, um, looking for other services for their family. That's exactly what they are working on. So what's the biggest challenge that your family advocates face? Yes. Um, as you know, the uh, Family Support and Connections uh, program is voluntary. So uh, sometimes families choose to opt out of the program at any time. And, you know, there's nothing, you know, fa- you know advocates can do if uh, families choose to opt out. Uh, and at times it's really hard for families to stay long within the program in order to really see the benefits of the program. And uh, sometimes it's really hard to connect with uh, homeless families because they are always moving from one place to the other. And, and given that we are in rural communities, there's a, is, there's a lack of a wide array of services to refer our client, um, our families to. And um, during the times that you know the families are working with uh, family advocates, they will provide uh, transportation, they'll you know, provide taxi tickets or taxi vouchers. Uh, they will sometimes give them a ride. However, the goal is for those families to figure this out on their own so that they become self-sufficient. And um, the lack of uh, public transportation in our area is a huge barrier to um, the family continuing with attending uh, services. Um, I also want to make, oh, sorry. I also want to mention that, you know, sometimes um, if we have parents, uh, if they have parents who have uh, felony charges uh, on their records, it is so hard for them to get jobs and get housing, which makes it difficult for family advocates to help them overcome some of these barriers. And funding also is limited. So, um uh, sometimes it's really hard for the participants to meet their goals and outcomes um, because of the lack of funding. Yeah, and that's a, that's a case across the board when we're trying to deal with just the, the basic nature of, of where you are and, and the struggles that families have. And you guys are all pointing on something about, you know, especially when 
the program is designed to prevent. That's what we're talking about, prevention of entering in the child welfare system. And knowing that there are so many different factors that can come into play. You guys have mentioned it. Is, is, it, is it substance use? Is it housing? Is it employment? Is it training? Is, is it uh, parenting skills? And those are all different. But yet they all look at the family holistically because it's not always one. It could be a combination of factors. Uh, you know, Diana, talk to me about this shift of looking at the family holistically and less addressing, you know, the symptoms and now more the root cause. Yes, um, our agency um, as a program has really redefined what success looks like for our families. Um, this has shifted our thinking in terms of our approach with the families, um, especially knowing that families know what's best for them. And um, they really are the experts in their own lives. So with all of that said, um, this is really, again, helping to put families in the driver's seat of their lives and taking ownership of their goals. Um, and we talk about the preventative uh, piece of this work, but we're also um, working on really helping to stabilize families long term and out of poverty. I think, you know, in years past, a lot of the work was around crisis driven, and we're really trying to be up in front of that and being really proactive um, because we really do want to help families with that pathway out of poverty so that it could be sustained long term and it would be a new systemic type um, system for them. Uh, one of the things that really has kind of helped with that, as I mentioned before, was the, the assessment tool that we're using. That really has helped us to truly get to the root causes versus symptoms. Um, for example, housing. We've seen folks get housing, um, but the problem is that they're not able to sustain it. Um, and a lot of times, you know, they're, they're back um, to us trying to look for answers for that. Um, with the old approach that we used, you know, again, people would lose their housing and then they would come back starting at ground zero to find new housing, only to sometimes repeat that same situation many times over. In the new approach that we're using, right up front, we're exploring the factors that contributed to the loss of the housing, and we work on addressing those issues. This allows the families to remove those barriers and sustain long-term housing. Again, once we can secure housing, this just brings the family one step closer to their pathway out of poverty. I can say the same thing about employment. You know, we had a really big push in the years past to really get people to work. And people would get jobs, but they weren't able to keep them. Um, and there was many reasons why. Child care, transportation, you know, they weren't really conditioned for what the workforce would look like. And then they would end up back on um, services. So so this time around, we really looked at what would that look like if you got a job? What support systems do you have in place? What skills do you have to address the needs that might arise? And where can we provide additional skill sets? Um, what are some things that we can do beyond you getting that employment to really help you out of poverty? We know many of our folks, if they out the gate, end up in a 
you know, a minimum wage job, say that's not the solution for them long term. That's the starting point. And then how do we build on that? And that's the kind of work that we're doing with families to help them, again, not be the crisis driven mode that we've had in the past, but really that longevity of being really able to stabilize and and move forward with their lives and, and be free of having to use our type of services, basically working ourselves out of a job. If you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it shifts away from being a plan of reaction to a plan of strategic forward looking. And it goes really back to providing in-home services before child welfare needs to be involved. Because, you know, when we, we use the phrase abuse and neglect, a lot of times it's not abuse and neglect that we're dealing with. It's the root causes that could happen decades, years, months, or potentially days beforehand. And so if you can stabilize the family, you also set them up on a better path uh, of, of long-term success. But you guys are in a, you know, a, a more rural part of the state. And so, Lolly, you are dealing with the community partners. And so where does that involvement happen when you may have a lack of services or a lack of resources within the county? Talk to me about what you're doing to establish and sustain those community partners. Actually, um, one of the things that I enjoy doing is really partnering with communities and um, also figuring out working, figuring out what the need of the family is, first of all. So say that they're needing um, IDs, what community partners can provide that. And we also also have a program where we can also help with that. So um, if there's clothing, school clothing, what community partners can um, help with that? Um, and we look at various partnerships and school supplies. School supplies is one of the things that we really run into that um, families are having a struggle to provide for that. Um, and there's the, um, the churches, the religion um, institutions that do help up with that. We also partner with um, the CTUIR, which is the, um, the, tri the tribal, yes. And they also have programs that do help out the families. So it's really, meeting the partners the partners where they're at and actually um, asking what resources they have available. A lot of that sounds uh, just like not only locating those resources with those services, but also making them aware of the need. And, you know, you use the phrase, hey, any part will help because it's going to go toward uh, a family in need. And, and, and your job is so crucial of connecting those families to those services. And so we're, we're talking about this new approach and, and clearly stabilizing families is not a new goal, but the approach that has changed. And so, Lawrence, let me bring you back in and, and talk about, hey, what are the numbers telling you after, you know, you've been at this for a, a bit of time? Uh, what kind of progress can you talk about? Thank you, Tom. The The numbers that initially drove us to this population was <clears throat> the percentage of active child welfare services the the families that were connected were approximately 46 to 48% of child welfare 
excuse me, child welfare cases had been on TANF or SNAP services prior. We are at approximately nine years later. It's not a it's not a short term, but approximately nine years later, currently uh, 32% of open child welfare cases had been on other state services prior. So, so the, the reduction at that bottom line end um, has shown progress in our approaches and the work that um, you've been hearing about today. So in, in, in less than a decade, you're talking about from nearly half to one third. And so th- there's, a, there's a difference there's a difference right there. So, so Lolly, based on those numbers that Lawrence just said, give me a story that what does that what does that look like really when we talk about the reduction? What does success look like in Oregon? Like it was mentioned before, um, this program is voluntary, and for families when they are identified, there is um, I have some examples. Um, there's one that the family need was childcare, parenting, hygiene, family management. So they did get engaged with Family Supporting Connections, and the successful outcome to this was they started a parenting class, they were working on maintaining their house, kept clean, and then eating healthier. To me, that is a really success story. And and explain this to me about how long you guys are still involved with the family, because just when services are provided on day one, it doesn't necessarily mean you walk out the door at that point. Correct. Um, in reality, the family coach and family supporting connections, they do staff these um, cases. Once they have met the referral outcome, then they get referred back to the family coaches and the family coaches continue working with these families because it's not just one barrier ends and then there's no other ones. There's other issues that do come along and if they want to increase their their skills or enhance their skills for employment, then that's another that's another step or goal that the family is willing to take. Yeah, self-sufficiency also means self-sustainability along the way. And so being there to at least make sure that sustainability is going to happen while the family advocates may step out, the family coaches are always there as a support system and to make sure that the family can keep that momentum, that sustainability. Yes, you're correct. Diana and Liddy and Lolly, along with Lawrence, Guys, uh, again, I appreciate the work you're doing. I appreciate you taking the time and, and, and sharing your story with what you guys are doing in Oregon with us here on the, on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Folks, thank you guys so much. Thank you very thank much. Thank you for having us. You know, we recently posted another prevention-related episode featuring work across Pennsylvania, where the state operates community-based prevention support similar to what Oregon is doing, but they operate it through their Office of Child Development and Early Learning basically providing the same system of support, recognizing that each family has different challenges and helping meet those specific root causes can go a long way to reducing risks and setting up families to sustain that stability over the long term. So if you go to this podcast webpage at acf.hhs.gov cb, just search podcasts, we'll have all of our prevention-related episodes for you. We'll also point you to some resources specifically about practice improvement, focusing on the connection and collaboration with TANF. 
So if you're wondering about the community-based prevention work in your state, we'll also put a link to the Friends National Resource Center's homepage so you can search your state for the community-based child abuse prevention grantees in your backyard. And there's also good stuff we'll put up there for from the Self-Sufficiency Resource Clearinghouse. So this is the fourth in a series of episodes we've put together featuring specific examples of improving community-based prevention, each coming at the topic from slightly different angles, community training programs, contract revisioning to correctly align services, and how states organize their networks of prevention services. So my thanks to Lawrence Piper, Lydia Machado, Diana Ilawa, and Lali Torres for their time and energy. And as always, my thanks to you for the valuable time you've chosen to spend listening to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.